I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Our show today is Freedom to Exit, the Libertarian Use of Market Ideology. The time to rise has been engaged. All of our music today comes from R.E.M.'s 1987 album, Document. We open with Finest Work Zone. Today we discuss the ideology of market egalitarianism and versions of libertarianism from the levelers in 17th century England through Adam Smith's Invisible Hand and Tom Paine's Rights of Man and on to Lincoln's political argument to poor whites that wage labor was slave labor and a man should instead stand on his own two feet on his own plot of land. As rhetoric, this has all proven quite influential and persuasive. As reality, it has kept most of us under the thumb of a boss and subject to the totalitarian state of the workplace. Elizabeth Anderson joins us to talk about her book, Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. In many workplaces, employers minutely regulate workers' speech, clothing, and manners, leaving them with little privacy and few other rights and employers often extend their authority to workers' off-duty lives. Workers can be fired for their political speech, recreational activities, diet, and almost anything else employers care to govern. From the ideal of free labor for white men, born of westward expansion, at the uncounted cost of genocide and slavery, we end up at the much-diminished claim that liberty resides in our unfettered ability to enter into a contract and then to exit from that contract. It's exit that we're left with. If you don't like it, you can leave it. And go where? Do what? Eat what? Sleep where? It turns out you are free to suffer, and your one true exit might be through the door feet first. Elizabeth Anderson is Arthur F. Thurnau Professor and John Dewey Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan. She's the author of The Imperative of Integration and Value in Ethics and Economics. She joined us via Skype. We begin with the concept of egalitarianism. And now, Freedom to Exit on Interchange on WFHB. So the standard picture of egalitarianism is that it wants equal amounts of stuff or resources or happiness or something like this. Uh, and my view is that now if you actually look at the history of egalitarian social movements and egalitarian concerns, it's fundamentally about egalitarian social relationships, about our being able to meet our fellows on terms of equality rather than on terms of domination and subordination or uh, honor and stigma and, and honor and dishonor mm -hmm. uh, and to set up social institutions that uh, uh, recognize that everyone's everyone has equal standing before those organizations in the sense that their interests count 
they have a say in how they're being governed. So this is all about how we interact with each other, Mm -hmm. about our social relationships, and not just about, say, how much money I have compared to how much money you have Mm -hmm. or whatever other good uh, we might be talking about. Sure. Generally, we run into trouble trying to um, implement some of this, you know, when there is no blank slate <laughs> to begin from in some ways, right? Uh, You're pe- absolutely right about that. Yeah. And and that, I think, is one of the critical concerns. So on the view I'm trying to advance, egalitarianism really gets its its critical force from the critique of actually existing social hierarchies. Mm-hmm. And exposure of what makes them so oppressive to those at the bottom, but also how it corrupts the characters, the people at the top, Mm -hmm. and how it's pretty much toxic for everybody. So we start off with a critique, but then, of course, we have to imagine what what could remedy those problems. Mm -hmm. And so we need a pretty rich conception of an ideal of a society of equals and how such a society could manage to solve various problems that need to be solved, such as the problem of production, (laughs) problems of dealing with things like pollution, all kinds of collective action problems need some kind of system of organization where we coordinate our behavior. Uh, And the idea is that egalitarianism is constantly reworking ideals of a society of equals. So it's not a fixed picture that you can define in advance that will be true for all time. Mm -hmm. That picture is constantly being modified under pressure. Number one, the pressure of trying to figure out how to solve the collective action problems that need to be solved. And number two, the fact that there are always some people who are really interested in in instituting hierarchy by one means or another. And they're very creative in the techniques they use to reinstitute hierarchy. And so our conception of equality and what's required to press back against that also has to be evolving over time uh, uh, in order to stop newly invented techniques for instituting hierarchy. One of the things in which um, I think that we struggle with here is the capacity for uh, the technologies we have now to to move forward with activities that structure us without anyone's particular knowledge of those structures and knowledge of who's doing the structuring. Um, you know, that's one of the issues that we run into is that uh, – our particular economic environments move forward so quickly that life happens around us um, ra- much further, much quicker than you or I can uh, study it and talk about it and propose it. Uh, already there are 7,000 other things being advanced. Yes, I think that's right. The pace of technological change and the fact that so much of this change isn't transparent to those of us mm. who inevitably use our technology, uh, that's a big challenge for mm-hmm. us. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're tracing the path of free labor and market ideology from the levelers to Abraham Lincoln. 
with philosopher Elizabeth Anderson. Let's let's walk uh, let's walk through the book though. Let's uh, let's try to to get get some of the specifics you deal with in the Tanner lectures. You start out uh, with the idea, and you've been talking about it now with the egalitarianism, but talking about it as as uh, uh, applicable to markets. And your your first chapter, your first lecture is that markets were originally a, an aspect of left. Uh, ideology or, or left politics. I trace some of the origins of free market thinking or what we might call today libertarian thinking back to the 17th century in England to a famous, now famous revolutionary group known as the Levelers. Mm -hmm. So they were Republicans in a small R sense. They wanted to get rid of the monarchy. They wanted to get rid of the aristocracy uh, and have equal rights for all citizens, at least the male citizens. <laughs> we continue to have a lot of caveats with uh, at least the males, at least the white uh, men, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, and that is very characteristic of the history of egalitarianism, mm -hmm. is that it starts off with a conception of who the equals are, which is not perfectly universal. Right. And then though they articulate arguments in universalist terms, which then can be appropriated by the excluded groups and say, well, you know, we should be involved too. <laughs> We're right. part of the equals, even by your own right. arguments. And that's typically how the, the circles of concern get expanded mm. within egalitarian thought. And the levelers, and, just by their name alone, uh, make sense, right? They want to level the playing field in the sense... Correct, yes. And so one of their major uh, points of objection was that, any, on their view, inequality was held up by state-granted monopolies. Mm -hmm. So you had the aristocracy, which had a lock on virtually all of the land of England. There was only a few hundred aristocratic families that owned almost all the land, and the laws of inheritance barred the breakup and sale of the great estates. So people were shut out of the capacity to set up their own farms. At the same time, you had state-granted monopolies uh, given to uh, the guilds, which were run by the big craftspeople, and they were oppressively regulating the terms on which the smaller craftsmen were able to produce and sell their goods. So they were completely under, under the thumb of the large uh, manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And the church also had a monopoly. They could censor any work. So dissenters couldn't really have freedom of speech. They were getting oppressed. They were being taxed to support the Church of England, even though they didn't believe in the Church of England. <laughs> right. So there's monopoly everywhere, and, they're, and they are, the levelers are revolting against all of these forms of monopolistic privilege and saying, look, freedom means we can choose our own way, set up our own businesses and run it how we like, not be under the thumb of these big businesses who are telling us what to do. Mm -hmm. mm. So the levelers uh, are a... Uh, a point of reference, you know, we're we're roughly 350 years on, but this become this is your example, the Levelers, and uh, why start with a group 
that's in in many respects ancient history and 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 certainly foreign to to probably anyone except very yeah I would say an elite group of of knowledgeable people who might understand who the levelers were. Why start with the levelers? Well, I do trace the origins of free market thinking to them. They were really strong free traders. Mm. And here's a point at which we can see egalitarian thought converging with free market thought and the advancing of free markets as an egalitarian ideal. Mm. But of course, that idea continues later in intellectual history to people who are, I think, known by the general public, people like Adam Smith, mm-hmm. the great economist. He was also a great moral philosopher. And Tom Paine, the great mm-hmm. American revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And finally, I trace this tradition of free market thinking all the way up to Abraham Lincoln, uh, and the founding of the Republican Party in the United States. They're all they are all on the same page. They want free labor, they want free markets, and they think that free, open, competitive markets in a free labor regime will result in a society of equals. And their thinking is that the only thing that allows massive accumulations of property and capital, uh, whereby the wealthy then get to dominate everyone else, they think that what props up that system is state-granted monopolies of one sort or other, or other kinds of oppressive laws, such as laws supporting chattel slavery and other forms of uh, involuntary servitude, like indentured servants and debt peonage, they oppose all of that. They think that free labor and free markets, the abolition of monopoly, will lead to a system in which the most efficient producer will be the individual sole proprietor who works his own capital, (laughs) whether that's land or whether that's a little craft shop. And under those conditions where you don't have any employees, nobody could have more, much more than anyone else because you can only profitably own as much capital as you can work with your own hands. And any two people's capacity for labor is not that different, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) right? So you could only have the most modest degree of inequality under a system like that if you think that the most efficient uh, unit of production is the self-employed individual working his own capital. It's time for a break. This is Exhuming McCarthy by R.E.M. More with Elizabeth Anderson on the path from egalitarianism in the marketplace to the chains of wage labor when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storr. In this segment, Elizabeth Anderson pinpoints the Industrial Revolution as undermining the supposed egalitarianism of market ideology. When Adam Smith is writing, are is there no Wedgwood yet? Are there no are there no factories yet? Who are I mean? I know that that the pin argument, you know, there's a fac- factory of ten employees. Uh, so somebody is somebody's in charge. There are hierarchies. There are people who own uh, more capital than others. And there's what seems like an idealization of this thing you're talking about: uh, free labor and and free markets. Yes. So remember, Smith is writing about England, mm-hmm. and let's keep in mind that a factory of ten has doesn't have that much of a hierarchy compared right. to a factory of hundreds. Mm-hmm. So Smith was writing at the threshold of the Industrial Revolution. The first inventions, uh, like the spinning jenny, had just been produced. People mm-hmm. had no idea that this would result in the oppressive factory system that really came into being a a couple of decades after Smith was writing. Mm -hmm. And also, so Smith was also writing in a system where there was monopoly. So he thought you get rid of monopoly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And you'd have even smaller scale units of production. So large chunks of the wealth of nations are devoted to the argument that the most efficient farming system will be the yeoman farmer, the farmer who owns his own land and farms it himself, you know, with the help of his family and so forth. Maybe you'd have uh, a farmhand every so often, but it would be a temporary and transient arrangement because eventually that farmhand would earn enough money, save enough money to buy his own plot if only you had a free market in land. And the empirical evidence for this was actually found in America. So one thing to keep in mind is that if you look overall in the world economy back around 1776, 95% of the global labor force was unfree. Mm -hmm. They're either slaves or indentured servants or, you know, debt peons. They're Mm -hmm. under some unfree labor regime. Except for America. Now, America, of course, did have slaves. But if you looked at the free population, you had unprecedentedly high rates of individual self-employment. And it was genuinely true for a typical free white man in America at the time that wage labor was only a temporary condition back in Smith's day, back at the time of the American Revolution. And they would very, very rapidly uh, move from wage labor to owning their own farm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Smith looked over to America and he thought, yes, that's due to free markets. You have free markets and land. There's no monopolies. And if only we had that in Europe then everyone would be self-employed in Europe and self-employment represents a kind of ideal of both freedom and equality. People are free when they're self-employed because they don't have to answer to a boss. They don't have to take anybody's orders, but the orders they give themselves. So they're totally autonomous and they're also equal 
because you can only own enough capital as you can profitably work with your own hands. And because people's capacity to labor isn't that different, uh, everyone is going to be basically equal in wealth and hence equal in standing in social esteem and people will interact with each other on the market as equals equally recognizing each other's dignity and standing before the others nobody expecting or feeling entitled to have anyone else bow and scrape before them this is doug storm on interchange we're talking about the politics of free labor and the drastic loss of liberty that came with the Industrial Revolution. Well, these are these are hard concepts, right? Because uh, you know, as you talk, it's it's not easy for me to imagine um, the realities of of dignity and standing in you know 18th century America or. Uh, yeoman farmers and their their lives or women and children on yeoman farms or as you say it's enslaved people who are propping up all of the economy for the western world at the time as well uh, it's a it's a difficult thing to conceive of in these terms and talking about free labor and and freedom in these uh, in these <laughs> in these periods are difficult also um, isn't there a period where we're generally land speculation is happening apace. I think even I don't know, there was a book recently about George Washington being a, a, a major land speculator. Um, so I, I guess I get kind of, again, confused in my own understanding of the history of how things are developed. They don't seem to be developed in that free sense of free markets. If there are groups of people who are speculating in land and then having them sort of settled by people who labor to clear land, labor to make these farms underneath these land speculation deals. Yes. So let's carry the argument forward to Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Lincoln was the leader of the Republican Party before the Civil War. And the Republican Party was at that time was basically had a single plank in its platform. It was a one-issue party, and the and the issue was anti-slavery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. they wanted to get rid of slavery, and for economic was, reasons, right? Well, for both economic and moral reasons. You know, if you mm-hmm. look at what Lincoln argued, he thought slavery was uh, a a violation of Mm -hmm. the natural rights of the slaves. Everyone's entitled to the fruits of their own labor. You can't just sort of hold somebody as property Mm -hmm. and, and order them around and seize the fruits of their labor. So there's a moral argument there. There's also a self-interested argument that he gave to uh, free whites, Mm -hmm. which was, look, uh, the slave power, that is the organized interests of slaveholders, is oppressive to the ordinary yeoman farmer, the free farmer up north. Mm-hmm. If slavery is allowed to be extended to the territories, and of course this is very hotly contested in places like Kansas, mm-hmm. the idea was that the big slave plantations would displace small yeoman farmers and they would be 
locked out of opportunities for their own advancement. And they would also be stigmatized because they're working with their hands just as slaves were. So labor would become manual labor would become despised. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Lincoln said, just look at the South, look at the, at the farmers in say Appalachia who were poor and despised and had no political power because the slave owners ran the whole show and they shut out poor whites from opportunity as well. Mm. So, so free labor was a deep idea and we should remember that by contrast with Europe, when Europeans visited the free states of the United States, they were shocked at the levels of social equality that existed in America in the first half of the 19th century. And this was manifest in American manners. So you didn't have any aristocracy. You didn't have people who felt they had to bow and scrape before others. Here I'm talking about relations between free people in America. Mm -hmm. Of course, they recognized that in the slave states, you did have a kind of quasi-aristocratic system even though there were no titles of nobility, the slave owners, the large slave owners definitely acted like they were a superior class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the free states, Europeans were just overwhelmed. They were overcome by the casualness uh, and the egalitarian manners of Americans. And even to that day, even to this day, Americans are a much more casual <laughs> society than in most of the of Europe, and that's a carryover from an earlier relative egalitarianism that is relative to what was characteristic hmm. of Europe. It's interesting to think about it in terms of, uh, as you say, I think um, uh, a Lincoln as a political or um, a particular idea of labor being characterized as lower class at that point as well, or uh, a slave class of laborer. Uh, it's, I assume we can still see this. Um, I don't know how this, how this fared as an idea, because it seems to me that's still a class issue in this particular society, that, that labor is still um, conceived of in those terms. Uh, obviously, our politics continues to do it, but it's it's I guess part of the the difficulty within this book itself, or within this argument, is that you're attempting to argue that markets, at least uh, on some level, offered an opportunity for leveling a particular, at least a particular class, a particular person, a particular way in which some people were offered more equality or more uh, opportunity. And this had to do with markets. That's the general tenor of that first uh, lecture, right? Yes. Now, of course, these had to be competitive markets. Mm -hmm. And it was all founded on the hypothesis that the most efficient producer would be the self-employed individual mm-hmm. who owns just just enough capital that he could uh, operate just with the labor of his own hands and perhaps that of his family. It's time for another break. 
This is Disturbance at the Heron House by R.E.M. Stay with us for more on the 350-year path from the ideal of a kind of freedom produced by market participation to the chains of wage labor in the modern corporation. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest by Skype is Elizabeth Anderson. We're talking about her new book, Private Government, and by that she means the company or organization that employs you and possibly limits your bathroom breaks during the day or denies them entirely. Libertarians continue to insist you have complete liberty in the workplace, the liberty to quit and go hang. Yeah, so we run into realities, right? We run into the idea that you can, um, again, talk about a thing that sounds good, but in truth, it's not that. It's not that way. It, so, how do you apply this idea to to the city? You know, how 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 does Lincoln's idea apply? How how do markets that are, um, I guess based on the idea that you can go out and be free on land in a way that you can sustain yourself, right? This is subsistence life. This isn't anything else. But people also had, it's also important to keep in mind that the standard of living for free Mm -hmm. workers in the United States was vastly higher than what it was in Europe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, You could get a decent standard of living that would, would have been considered very well off for its day mm-hmm, mm-hmm. back in 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 Lincoln's time. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not trying to argue with you. I'm trying to suggest just generally to say even as Lincoln is saying this, you're telling me that this is not realistic in cities. This is not a realistic idea for immigration for immigrants. This is not a realistic idea obviously for uh, even even after the abolition of slavery. It's still not a realistic idea. Plausibly a realistic idea during reconstruction which was quickly trampled upon and you know shoved in a well you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so, yes. Um, yes. So, you know, these things still uh, seem like idealizations of um, your your freedom to subsist. And if you're not going to imagine accumulating capital, surplus, I suppose, being able to store up anything, your, your ideal becomes, uh, again, one of not starving, but being able to put up enough to take care of yourself and your family and, 
you know, joining other people in the square or wherever you do in small towns where they've all gone out and worked the land. And now they also have enough turnips and potatoes and corn to put up their feet for a little bit or go into town and dance or whatever it is we do. So this is the ideal. It's an agrarian ideal. Yes. Um, and But it's still an idealization. Yes. And it never perhaps was a realization <laughs> for most people. But the ideas are what you're talking about, and you talk about this in your book as, as well. So if we move to uh, to the point you make about the industrial, industrial revolution kind of uh, amping up all of life, uh, moving very quickly from the agrarian ideal into, uh, into industrial processes and how that immediately changed everything – um, yes. You then have to realize that that market ideal, that egalitarian idea of opportunity in labor has vastly changed. Absolutely. And the, what I say is that the critical thing that changed with the Industrial Revolution was economies of scale. Mm -hmm. So you have massive new technologies, the spinning jenny ironworking, railroads, and so forth, all of these things require massive amounts of capital that had to be worked with many hands. And at that point, uh, with huge concentrations of capital, free markets and competition is not going to lead to a situation in which the most efficient producer is the self-employed individual. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a big factory owner who outcompetes everyone else. And that factory owner is going to have huge concentrations of capital that need a lot of hands to work it. And so that factory owner is going to have a lot of wage workers to work that capital since he can't work it all by himself. Mm -hmm. So what I'm arguing is that this free market ideal born out of a sentiment uh, in favor of both freedom and equality, which made a certain degree of sense before the Industrial Revolution, becomes manifestly absurd once the Industrial Revolution happens. Right. But here in America, all of that libertarian rhetoric, which was created by people like Smith and Paine and Lincoln, continued on oblivious to the economic reality that the vision of freedom and equality that people were appealing to then uh, was destroyed by the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the result of this is that contemporary libertarians continue to talk and offer the same kinds of promises of freedom and equality that the competitive free market would supposedly deliver that makes no sense because they're not taking into account the realities of wage labor. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess uh, partly the struggle I have here is that uh, it's such an obvious argument. I mean, I, I guess to those who agree with you, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's such – and that I don't – like I, I, I have trouble not thinking everyone arguing otherwise is disingenuous. Um, it's not so much that they're disingenuous, I think, as that they are ideologically blinded. And so there's all kind, and this is what I unpack in the second 
part of my book. Mm-hmm. This is so, about private gov. This is where you focus on private government. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. So if you start off with a picture, according to which all that exists is either free markets or the state, and you identify government with the state, right? So then our only choice is, okay, do you want government to rule over us or do you want free markets? And that's how libertarians cast the alternatives. And what I argue is that that way of casting our alternatives is blind to the reality that there's a third alternative out there, not state government, but what I call private government. And what I mean by that is a form of government in which the governed have no voice, no say in how they are being governed. Mm -hmm. So private government is the same as undemocratic government. Mm -hmm. And that's the government that we face as wage laborers in the workplace. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Elizabeth Anderson, author of Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. So this is, I guess, why I called libertarian arguments today disingenuous, because it seems very clear that that third way or that government that is private, that is of of wage labor, that is by corporations, is clearly... Uh, despotic. <laughs> you know, it's clearly, as you point out, a dictatorial. It's clearly uh, managed in a hierarchical way that does not uh, have a worker's interest ever in mind. So this is why this is why I use the word disingenuous. That way you're speaking of seems to me so obvious, right? So obvious to say this is the reality of most life if you work for a wage. That's it's as simple as that. And you point out multiple, multiple ways in which your employer has power over you. Yes. And what you see, what you see libertarians respond. So in my book, I have a response from Tyler Cowen, the famous libertarian economist. Uh, and Cowen is just resisting 100 percent of the way acknowledging this, what what you and I consider an obvious reality, that the workplace is a site of authoritarian governance. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of ideological obfuscations that mm-hmm. take place. And the principal one is freedom of contract. Right. Right. So the idea is, look, the worker has agreed in the employment contract. This is just an exchange of goods. The worker sells his labor and the employer uh, pays a wage. It's just the price of labor. So this is a this is a contract just like if I was selling apples to you, I would sell my apples and you would pay me for them and we would each be as free uh, after the transaction as before. Uh, it, it's an attempt to assimilate, the labor relation, the wage-labor relation, to a relation between free and independent contractors who are as free after the transaction as before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the reason why that doesn't work, of course, is that you can't sell your labor to another person 
uh, and walk away, you are attached to your labor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if the other person owns it or is renting it, so to speak, in the wage labor uh, condition, you come under their authority. And then libertarians say, well, yeah, it's sort of a it's sort of an authority there, but it's not really authoritarian because you could quit anytime you like. And it is true that legally speaking, workers are free to quit if they don't like the orders that the employer is uh, is giving them. But it isn't really doesn't really mean that they are free because what are their options for the vast majority of workers? Their only option is to accept the authority of another dictator in a different workplace. (laughs) Right, right. It's a pretty, uh, it's again, it's one of those things that has operated so wonderfully at the, at that level of of propaganda in some sense where you even have country songs like take this job and shove it, where you imagine your agency. Um, but once you shove that job, you still have to make money. (laughs) Right. You do not get, to subsist on your farm um, or go to your garden plot where you have enough to then live off in your life. And you're not going to be able to buy gas for your truck or anything else like that. So they're, right. they're, just, they're just ridiculous claims. So what the typical libertarian does at this stage is say, well, you know, what do you want? Communism? But look at how awful Stalin was and mm-hmm. Mao. Right, right. <laughs> we have alternatives to Stalin and Mao as well. Sure. And and what I argue is that the that the most important thing we have to work on is, given that we do have these huge economies of scale, which are the foundation of the great prosperity that advanced economies can produce, workers need a voice in these giant corporations so that their interests are taken into account. It's time for our final break. This is Fireplace, again off of R.E.M.'s 1987 album, Documents. When Interchange returns, Elizabeth Anderson will tell us how the U.S. workplace is like a communist dictatorship. Stay with us. Crazy, crazy times Hang up your chairs to better sleep Clear the floor to dance Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. Tonight's show is Freedom to Exit. I'm joined via Skype by Elizabeth Anderson, a philosopher at the University of Michigan, whose Tanner lectures have been published by Princeton University Press as Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. For our final segment, Anderson asserts that employment in the U.S. 
is really how we're governed, and that far from being a form of democracy, this is actually closer to a communist dictatorship. We don't know how to practice politics anymore. I would suggest that this workplace scenario that you're just we're discussing here is a way in which we forget to be political or are are enabled to be political or not trained to be political because we live within that dictatorial relationship. You cannot be political at the workplace. And, you know, that's the idea behind unions as well as a way to become political within the workplace environment, I suppose. This is um, further interesting. We had a conversation just last week on um, the political prisoner and one of the ways in which the political prisoner has to uh, make a life that matters is to continue to be political within the prison. Um, Yes. And this is kind of the same situation where we're suggesting or you're suggesting, and I'm agreeing wholeheartedly with you, that the workplace is not too dissimilar from that prison situation where you are entirely given over to it, become one of those total institutions. Yes. And in fact, if you look historically at the invention of the factory uh, and the, the whole concept of factory management, you can trace it back to Bentham's Panopticon, mm-hmm. his famous model prison, where everyone would be under constant and total surveillance Uh, and consequently be subject to a form of discipline from the fact that they knew that they were being constantly monitored and could be sanctioned for any violation of rules. Mm -hmm. So Bentham actually wrote a famous or perhaps notorious work, not only extolling this as a model for prisons, but extolling this prison ideal of a total institution to workhouses for the poor, ordinary factories, hospitals, schools, orphanages. <laughs> like right. he thought this is a great model for organizing uh, uh, human activity because it, he thought it would be totally efficient. Hmm. Well, not only that, but it would be moral. Yes, because everyone would be uh, uh, right. They 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 would be cooperating. Under a supposedly benevolent right. under, Yeah, unfortunately under duress, under stress and yes. duress. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems to me, again, that we, we come up against this truth or these, these sort of historical, uh, again, what I think are obvious, is obvious situations. And even if you imagine Bentham having, and uh, you, know, you read any number of things about Bentham as being a good-hearted person or to being, you know, having good intentions, right? We can, we can imagine this to be true, I guess, but um, you cannot look at it without like reeling back in horror at the same time recognizing that that has come to fruition. I wouldn't say that Bentham's panopticon is completely we're, accurate. We're pretty close at this point. Uh, yeah. in, some, in some industries, it is pretty close. Mm-hmm. I would say that there is variation in how awful workplaces are. Some of them sure. are definitely on the totalitarian end of things, um, but not all of them. 
you know, I think University of Michigan is not so bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you're in one of the few places. This is also an interesting aspect of life now, right? Uh, we had, again, we've had other people on basically to talk about this, this sort of strength of university economies, like there are towns in America who are not failing because they have universities in them. Uh, the university is an yeah. economic institution that has done pretty well, but it's one of the only ones. Well, there are others. You know, you got high tech. You have you have the healthcare system, which has its ups and downs. Uh, but there's a, actually quite a lot of fulfilling work that you can find uh, in healthcare, as well as an awful lot of scamming. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I'd worry to talk about healthcare in term again in terms of markets, in terms of trying to decide what things should or shouldn't be commodities. I mean, labor. Uh, is not a commodity, yet it's it's talked about as if it is. If I'm going to sell a thing, it's a commodity I'm selling. If I have to sell my labor, it means I'm selling myself. These are all problematic things. If I'm going to have to sell health uh, or buy health, basically, these become difficult things as well. Markets don't seem to be designed to do very many things uh, in a way that you would say it does sustain human flourishing. You could say they are good things, for particular items that can be commodified or called commodities that we'd all agree on. Uh, this apple, as you say before, uh, you know, this thing we make may be a commodity, but at the same time, my life, my health, my my ability to get up in the morning and, and put my hands to, to a, a plow, uh, these things are not commodities. And that's, to me, it seems to me that one of the singular uh, confusions, intentional in some ways, I, I would guess, a singular problem for trying to understand how markets might actually be useful. Yes. I, so I, I think markets are very useful for lots and lots of things. But you are quite right that there are some core areas where just leaving things up to the market doesn't work very well. And certainly with respect to labor, that's true. Uh, and also, <clears throat> I think we've done enough experimenting with markets and healthcare mm -hmm. to really start wondering uh, at least whether the attempt to make healthcare something that's just a commodity is is worth all of the horrible costs mm -hmm. involved. <laughs> This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Philosopher Elizabeth Anderson shows us that the workplace in the U.S. is equivalent to a communist dictatorship. Well, part of the suggestion here, too, is that the state can be doing other things than propping up these particular market arguments, that the state does not need to be in bed with the corporation. You know, when you talked earlier about trying to understand government, and this is a big part of the book as well, to understand what being governed is, there's more to it than the state. And you have to understand the best way to imagine um, being a community that understands it needs governance or being governed in some ways and being able as a community to decide on how to be governed and have a voice in that government. And Absolutely. That's yes. a big so, part. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I want to stress that one of the biggest targets of my book is this constant refrain in American politics largely inspired by libertarian free market thinkers that our fundamental political choice 
is between giving decisions over to the government, meaning the state, or to the free market, which is supposedly free. And what I'm arguing is a lot of decisions are not something that so-called free markets are able to decide because they require a tighter form of organization and coordination of human activity. They're decided by government one way or another, whether they're the private dictatorial governments of the firm or the democratic government of state, local, and federal government. And so deep down, most of our most of our political choices are not between free markets and government, but rather between democratic government and dictatorial government. You know, one of the things that, that I'd like to, I'd like to, I think, end on is is the is the difficult understanding of institutional um, creation or or institutions as society builders and the terms of sort of going against uh, liberalism as as a way in which um, you have to recognize you're not a single individual ever. You and your thoughts are products of your, uh, your experience and your context, your life, the life you're living. And the institutions are what form most of us. And, how, you know, institution is a big word, but that means most of the things that we operate within, school, work, church, you name it, it's institutional. Um, and these, these shape us, these form who we are. And if we live in a world in which work is a dictatorship, then we are people that are created to believe in the dictatorship. Yes, I I do think that that's a major problem. And I want to point out a really important fact about why that's such a problem for Americans. And that is that uh, it has to do with the history of labor movements in the United States. Mm. Uh, Uniquely, uh, among the rich countries of the world that industrialized first, violence against people involved in the labor movement was extremely high in the United States. Mm -hmm. Massive resistance by corporations to the labor movement and labor unions has always been a central defining feature of American labor politics. Whereas in Europe, the labor movement was far more successful. And to understand that, you have to see that even though rates of labor unionization are not necessarily all that high in places like France and Germany and other peer countries, the power of the unions in those countries cannot be measured just by the percentage of people who are members of labor unions, because those labor unions get to negotiate wage contracts and benefit contracts for people who aren't union members. <laughs> and a lot of labor negotiations are industry-wide, whereas in America, they're firm by firm, shop by shop. Mm-hmm. And that fragmentation of the American labor union movement and its small numbers and their lack of power mm-hmm. has also, and of course, their radical decline over time, At the peak of labor unionization in the United States, only about a third of American workers were represented by a union. Mm -hmm. Now, in the private sector in the United States, it's less than 7% are unionized. So there's a lot of one of the most important contributions that labor unions have made, both in Europe and in the United States, was to keep up the consciousness of workers and make them aware of these issues collectively and give them a collective voice 
to articulate complaints, which they can do without fear if they're backed up by a union, but which is they can't really do freely if they're not, because the moment they pipe up and say anything, they're fired. Right. So we see, for instance, in the United States, 70 percent of people, employees who complain about sexual harassment at work face retaliation. <laughs> OK, mm-hmm. everybody knows this, which is why they all shut up about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you ha- so workers suffer massive abuse, right. but a lot of them are keeping quiet about it because it's dangerous to speak out. It's just like a totalitarian regime. That's our show. Thanks to Elizabeth Anderson for joining us today to talk about her new book, Private Government, published by Princeton University Press. We'll close with Strange, a last selection from R.E.M.'s document, released in 1987. Next time on Interchange, 1968, beneath the paving stones, the beach. Indiana University is hosting a festival and symposium intended to explore the intellectual and aesthetic legacy of 1968 during its 50th anniversary year. Programs focus on the events that occurred in Paris, Chicago, and Prague of 68, and examine their relationship to and resonance with current struggles in the U.S. and around the world. 1968, on the next Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer, and Bryce Martin is our studio engineer. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Hey, hey, hey.